Welcome to Healthy Dialogue, the podcast of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. Here's your host, ACHB CEO, Cece Connolly. Raise your hand if your doctor has ever asked you any of the following questions. Do you have stable, affordable housing? Do you have easy access to nutritious food? Are you steadily employed? Do you feel safe in your neighborhood? Can you access transportation to get to a job? Now, obviously, I have no idea who out there is raising their hands or how many of you. But based on what we know from research, I'm going to assume that not many of you raised your hands. I just don't think too many doctors are asking those questions. And that's because those questions don't really sound like medical questions. They sound a little bit more like the sort of thing a social worker might ask you. But according to CMS, that's the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services government agency, about two-thirds of all medical episodes are rooted in social determinants of health. Stick with me here. That's going to be SDOH the conditions and environment in which we live, work, play, or age. Two-thirds of all medical episodes in the U.S. have some basis in food insecurity, housing insecurity, transportation issues, personal safety, pollution, bad tap water, unsteady employment, and that list goes on. But hang on now, because that data point, two-thirds, was before the COVID-19 pandemic. Now multiply out those social determinants by social isolation, maybe being stuck in the house with a domestic abuser, mental health issues that arise from COVID stress and anxiety, or maybe the loss of a job for you or a loved one. It's probably not hyperbole to rank social determinants of health as one of the most pressing issues in healthcare today. In episode two of Healthy Dialogue, we introduced you to Healthcare 2030, ACHP's Roadmap to Reform. That 10-year blueprint for reforming our health system centers on three aims, and one of those aims is putting communities first. And that's the banner under which social determinants become such a key focus for the future. To dig into this topic, I've asked two experts to join us today, Trenor Williams and Adazi Anikwechi. It's my pleasure to welcome Adazi Anikwechi, President of Impact International, and Dr. Trenor Williams, founder and CEO of Socially Determined to Healthy Dialogue today. Two prominent leaders on social determinants of health, Adeze and Trenner are deeply invested in how social needs impact overall health and well-being. And boy, is that a timely topic given the COVID-19 pandemic raging across the United States. Adeze, Trenner, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Cece. Thanks, Cece. 
Now, you too, of course, know that social determinants of health is not a new fad or a buzzword, but it's a, it's a very serious topic that maybe didn't get much recognition until the past year or two. And now, as a result of COVID-19, we've really shined a pretty harsh spotlight on inequities in our country that can have a great impact on health. So I'm going to jump right into this starting with COVID-19, and to what extent, Adese, I'll start with you, to what extent do you see COVID-19 and the pandemic that we are still in the midst of affecting social needs in this country or changing our lens on it? Yeah, no, thanks for the question, Cece. I think, you know, COVID is one of multiple pandemics, right, right now that we're experiencing, it sort of exacerbates what already was a pandemic of inequities in, in, in just about every aspect of life. But since we're talking about health, we'll, we'll focus on healthcare inequality. The public health crisis has further worsened existing economic crises, education inequities, and more, right? There, there, there's a sort of a cascading set of events that we're yet to see. What COVID-19 has done is put a spotlight, a glaring, very harsh spotlight on things that already existed. And I think one, one good thing is it's forced us to confront what I think to date most people have been content to just sort of gloss over. With respect to health, those of us who've been doing this research or in this policy space for a long time, none of us were shocked about the effects of the pandemic on communities of color, African-Americans, Hispanics, etc. I do think that the depth of disparities was, a, was quite shocking initially when we started to see 70% deaths among you know African Americans, where if they when they made up less than twenty percent of the population, it started to feel even worse in in some respects. So I think one good thing is we are having these conversations because we just cannot afford not to. But it's also helping us have a more holistic conversation around health, education, work, and labor, and economic outcomes that we all know are completely interrelated. And it just makes sense to think about solutions on a much broader scale. And Trenor, I'm curious from your perspective, do you think we need to distinguish between unmet social needs in a crisis such as this pandemic versus the more ingrained systemic unmet social needs? Or is it really the same type of problem and we've got to get on to the solutions? Thanks, Cece. First of all, and Adazi, I really appreciate your comments. I, I don't think that we're in a position that we can put Band-Aids um, on a short-term challenge um, and that have been highlighted by the pandemic and by the social protests um, that are ongoing across the country, both of which related. And again, I think, as you said, shine a, a white bright light on those inequities. I think we are all in a position where we need to address the systemic challenges that our communities face, that vulnerable populations in those communities face every single day. And the only way that we're going to drive real change is to be able to address it from a larger scale, to look for the root causes of the challenges, and to be able to come together. I don't think that this is 
a community health plan by themselves. I don't think it's a health system. I don't think it's a community organization. I don't think it's a state government independently. I think it is a collective of organized individuals and and organizations that come together to start to address these systemic challenges and problems that we're facing. And and only through that coordination are we truly going to get to a point where we can move forward and start to see real impact across these populations. So I'm glad you brought up the various potential players or stakeholders, Trenner, because I was going to be devil's advocate in this conversation and start by saying, why is this the problem of the health industry? And maybe we ought to just articulate that for our listeners. If, if I start with you, Trenner. Sure. I don't think it's only the problem nor the responsibility for a solution of the health care industry. That being said, I think we have an unbelievable, and I say we, as a, as a family doc, a practitioner, and someone who runs a, a healthcare company, I think we have an opportunity and an obligation to be part of the solution. And, and I think about the role that our community health plans play, that our health system play as anchors in the communities that they have the opportunity to serve. They are many times the largest employers in those communities. They are a resource for care and support. That being said, I think there's incredible opportunity for them to be leaders and to do things with partners, local government, state government, local community organizations, advocacy groups as part of that, and even national players to come together. But but health care, and I think this is historically true, can lead in times of crisis. And so, Adeze, you have spent a good part of your career in the policy world. And I'm wondering, do you also see value-based payment models as the path forward in this instance? I do. I mean, I, I would like to add to Trenner's last comment there. I completely agree and this question is actually often put to me, why is this the problem of healthcare? And my answer is that when things go awry in a population or even with an individual, one of the first places where we see the results is in the healthcare system. And that is probably the most expensive place to see adverse results, bad, you know, poor, poor outcomes from this whole set of things that could go wrong socially. So we see it at our doorstep. And if not health, then who? Now, going back to your question around value-based care, I do, you know, we've been talking about value-based care for more than 10 years, maybe actually a little bit more than 10 years, sped up by the ACA. The whole goal is to get providers and payers more aligned with value, more patient-centered in how we care for individuals, less disease-focused, hopefully more more wellness-focused. So thinking about much broader holistic approaches to caring for patients. I don't know that health equity was explicitly articulated in our earlier discussions around value-based care. I think it's certainly one of the tools in our toolbox, but there's a lot more to do, I believe, in more forcefully articulating how we can address and advance health equity through value-based payment methods. Both of you have quite a bit of expertise when it comes to data. And so I do want to ask each of you, and Trenner, maybe I'll start with you, where does data fit into 
the big challenge of trying to address social determinants of health. Yeah, it's a great and important, like Desi, I get this question a lot. And one, I would start by saying that in healthcare and whether you are a health plan, health system, community health plan, et cetera, we have such expertise in looking at clinical and claims data to try to better predict future outcome utilization patterns, et cetera. What we haven't done systematically in a data-driven way is start to look at data outside of the healthcare arena, so the pattern of life. So for, for us in, in our world, as we think about data related to education, finances, asset, legal, consumer information, all of those pieces of data together. And, and there's so, I mean, in 2020, we are blessed with having access to information from public sources, from commercial data providers, from the from individuals, families themselves, as as part of that to be incredible sources of that data. So one thing is the data is there outside in, in, for people's life that will tell us so much about their healthcare journey. But just to be clear, it's more than the individual data elements themselves. This is not we're not going to be successful if this is a data aggregation strategy. So Adeze, when you think about all of that data now available, what would you say is some of the most valuable or insightful data, or maybe it's actionable? So in terms of what's actionable, I, you know, I, I am a follower of Trenor Williams when it comes to data, because I believe so much in what he's doing was socially determined. I do think that a lot of what we have is already actionable. And because I, you know, one of the problems with data is that it becomes a crutch, right? There are some places where we don't collect what we need to collect because someone has made the decision that it's inconvenient. But then in some areas, we have way too much data, but we're not really using it and we're not using it to make decisions. So we have a lot of what we need in order to move forward. What I actually think we lack in in some respects is community-derived data, so information from people and communities themselves. And what I mean by that is that the, the people that we are looking to serve and whose needs we are looking to address, often we find that there are gaps. We have sort of the high level, maybe claims data, administrative data, encounter data, but information from people directly, we often don't have. And sometimes we discount. My biggest fear, you haven't asked this, but Cece, my biggest fear is that while the interest remains high, and I think it'll stay, I think this is, to me, this is the problem of our time, right? Inequity across a bunch of different domains. But my biggest fear in health is that for a couple of years, people will throw all sorts of stuff at health, you know, social determinants of health. People get tired of the phrase social determinants of health, but without precise, meaningful interventions that are achievable, right? For results that are actually achievable, people will get tired, wash their hands after a couple of years and move on and say, there's nothing we can do. And we'll be right back to where we started, if not worse. I think that's a very real concern just based on our years of experience in in healthcare. And as you say, people will get tired of the phrase or the topic and they'll be on to something else. Trenor, let me ask you at Socially Determined, do you have a good example of an actionable piece of data that you're now 
moving on in a positive way? I think about some of the organizations that we have the opportunity to work with. And and one is a community health plan in Ohio that has really identified where financial insecurity and financial strain has had dramatic impact on their member and their patient population. And as they have referred and identified those individuals who have that risk and enrolled them in financial opportunity and a financial opportunity center and counseling associated with that, they've seen real dramatic impact in healthcare utilization, so reductions in emergency room and inpatient utilization, and increases in monthly income and average credit score. So when they think about that as a person, right, what, what, what I care about like as a person is that my monthly income has gone up or my credit score has gone up, which may mean I'm eligible potentially for a loan. I don't care as much about the ED or inpatient utilization, but the plan does. In Washington, D.C., one of the programs that is underway is a produce prescription program for pre-diabetic, diabetic, and hypertensive patients who are food insecure. And in the district, it's unfortunate that we have a single grocery store in Ward 7 to serve a really large population of vulnerable population. And those patients with a clinical disease who are identified as food insecure get a prescription for fruits and vegetables that they redeem at the giant grocery store there. And first of all, 88% of people that are getting that prescription fill it, which is unheard of. They get a nutritional consult while they're there. And what we're starting to see is decreased ED and emergency or uh, inpatient utilization, increased in primary care utilization, better patient satisfaction and experience. And I think that those examples, right, two of hundreds that are out there across the country, hopefully give people a sense of hope about what's possible and that as they start to make these investments, they can see real return. And Trenner, just one more question for you, and then I'll I'll close out with Adese. But I know you have a phrase, significant seven, and I would love for you to just quickly explain that concept. So when we started our company about four years ago, we, we looked at social risk and how different organizations were defining it from the World Health Organization and CMS and CDC, different organizations. And and what we identified were, were seven drivers, economic and financial insecurity, food insecurity, transportation, housing, health literacy, social isolation as part of that, and really in crime and violence, including domestic violence as, as part of that, and identified ways to quantify that risk at a community level. And I think that's so important. So when I think about food insecurity, it has as much to do with assets and resources available to a person and where they live, like how close is a grocery store, healthy and unhealthy food options that are available to them, SNAP retailers potentially that are available to them, And it has to do with my own personal situation, my financial situation, the language that I speak, cultural norms for me and my family, and those two things together. So we are able to quantify social risk across those seven. You know, one of the things when we were talking about COVID as well, what we clearly know is some of those have been exacerbated related to the pandemic. And certainly social isolation, we know is increasing. Food insecurity, we see the fragility of our food systems across the U.S. and how that ties now to economics, people losing their jobs, the challenge with unemployment reimbursement and other things like that. So increases their financial strain as part of that. We're going to start to see, we believe, significant increases in housing instability related to rent, mortgage, and other payments like that. So each of those seven are really important. 
Adeze, I want to give you a final word on a topic that we really could and probably should spend hours on because it is so monumental. But my question is about that. It sometimes seems overwhelming to me. And we now are confronting so many of these problems in our country today. Some advice for how we get started or how we manage something that seems so enormous? Yeah, I think it's been around since since the beginning of, of time. You know, there isn't a silver bullet. I, I, I'll tell you, Cece, I don't think that there is one single lever that we can push or pull to get, you know, to solve this. There is definitely no panacea. In fact, just yesterday I saw the Fed put out a study basically showing that the pandemic has led to a near collapse of many minority owned businesses in the last few months. And, you know, I think also yesterday there was a bill introduced to have the Fed take on racial and ethnic inequities and access to, to capital. So as we speak, it is metastasizing, which means that the solutions that we need to consider need to be broad in scope. And it will take a lot of time, right? They need to be thought of as long-term investments. I mean, I think that the one, the one thing I will say that has, to, that has to happen is leadership on multiple levels on this issue, commitment and leadership. So if, you, if we walk into a health system, there has to be someone who is focused on equity, and it ha- who is at a senior level and is in a position to make decisions and commit resources and redirect if the health system is not on the right path. And that person has to have access to the C-suite and the board, and the board needs to have bought in. Because if it isn't an organization mission, if, it, if it's not part of the mission of the entire organization, I, I don't think that the commitment is real. I think we just have to commit and commit for a long time. You're absolutely right. I want to thank both of you for joining Healthy Dialogue, and I want to ask that you both keep up this important work. Thank you. Thank you, Cece. Thank you. And we'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Support for Healthy Dialogue comes from FoodSmart by Zapongo. FoodSecure, a FoodSmart program created to address food insecurity, provides grocery comparison shopping, SNAP guidance and integration, and discounts to aid members with food accessibility and affordability during these unprecedented times. Through telenutrition, FoodSmart's virtual network of registered dietitians will work with your members to curate a personalized, tasty, and affordable meal plan. To learn more about how you can help your members facing food insecurity, visit www.foodsmart.com. Today, we hit the road to Pennsylvania to speak with Dr. Jaywan Rue, President and CEO of Geisinger Health System. He's a passionate leader and advocate for improving our nation's healthcare system, launching innovative programs that tackle some of healthcare's most pressing challenges. Dr. Rue has held numerous positions at Humana, the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System, 
Kaiser Permanente, CMS, and he currently serves as a MedPAC commissioner. Jay Wan, welcome to Healthy Dialogue. It's great being here. Thanks for having me, by the way. Well, and and I have to say thank you for hosting me here in Danville, PA, birthplace of my mother. Which is phenomenal. (laughs) I, I think it's amazing to see people who have roots in the area make their way back and if your mother ever wants to come back and visit us, please let us know. We'd oh. love to show her around. It's changed a little bit probably since the last time she's been here. Yes, it has, but she'll love that. And uh, of course, it means I have a little soft spot about coming here. And for our listeners, I want to assure them all that you and I are quite socially distant for this conversation, but it sure is nice in pandemic time to get to be able to see somebody. It is. It's those little things that I think we all miss. I'm going to jump right in on something that I think is near and dear to both of our hearts. And it's this model of payer and provider integration, partnership, collaboration. And so when you think about leading an integrated payer provider organization, how does that enable you to focus on things such as prevention or getting farther upstream? Yeah, I think you you nailed it. That's the crux of what I love about the model when you could have collaboration or integration between the financing arm of healthcare, i.e. insurance, versus the clinical care delivery arm of, of healthcare. When you bring those two together, it opens up a whole new world where you're able to actually focus on the health of communities and you're able to swim upstream, so to speak, to build the right programs around prevention and keeping people healthy out of the ERs, out of the hospitals, because you have every bit of incentive to drive those programs. I think in in a more traditional fee-for-service model, the challenge has always been that you really can only do things that feel or you're always concerned about, well, is it billable? Is it reimbursable? And the payment systems throughout the country, really, the American healthcare system, That payment model sometimes doesn't incent or reimburse for things that we know really benefit people's health. We have great programs on things like food insecurity for people who have a tough time controlling their diabetes, as an example, or even something as simple as really dedicating a lot of resources in the primary care models. We know that when people have fantastic primary care, the likelihood that they're going to be admitted or have to go to the ER is substantially less. Their outcomes for many chronic comorbidities, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, congestive heart failure, any of those things, we know their outcomes are better and their experience is so much better because they have that that quarterback for their care. That's another example, believe it or not, just really robust primary care that's tough to make that work through a traditional fee-for-service reimbursement model or even emerging models like in the home, bringing care into the home. Some of those models can't find legs in a traditional fee-for-service reimbursement system because when you put resources and providers in cars and drive them all over the place to get to your sickest population and meet their needs in the home, it's a pretty expensive model and it only makes sense and is sustainable when you're actually able to deliver the same kind of care that you would in an emergency room or even avoiding hospitalizations. And so you mentioned Geisinger at Home. Tell us a little bit more about that program 
mind. I'm wondering if there's a telemedicine piece to it. There is, is the short answer. So for those of you who may or may not know, Geisinger at Home is a program we launched about two years ago. It takes the sickest three to 5% of our patient population. They tend to be more elderly populations. And it takes elements of the actual care delivery and moves them into the home. And so things like IV medications or IV infusions, nebulized therapies for those with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, taking actual providers, whether it's advanced practitioners or physicians, into the home. It's a combination of the care coordination and care management services that you would more traditionally see, but actually delivering care and administering therapies in the home, I think that's what's different about it. When we've deployed the model, we've seen 30, 40% reductions in the ER use rate and the admission rate for these populations. And of course, the families are thrilled because these tend to be people with a lot of chronic diseases. And it's tough to manage all of those. And a lot of these folks, if you envision the sickest 3% of a population, they're not as mobile either. And so If you can't get them to the care, this program is a good illustration of how we're getting the care to the people. And so that's just been a huge win for us and for our members and for the communities. The way that telemedicine fits in is when these teams go out into the home, they're able to use telemedicine to tether back to pulling in a physician, let's say, or pulling in a specialist the most common one being cardiology and being able to advise the team that's actually in the home of things that they may need to tweak as far as medications or other things to be concerned about, or maybe it's just reassurance for the family and bringing that kind of attention to the home has also been a big satisfier. And so many, many ways where it's just been an earth-changing, earth-shattering kind of new model for us. And now we're trying to take it to the next level, because what we've also seen is even within that sickest three or 5% of the patient population, they're not all the same. And so our next step is really fine-tuning that that titration model and really even being able to, quote-unquote, discharge people from the program when their immediate care needs are more stabilized. Those are the things that we're working on now. Well, and so interesting that you mentioned access to specialists. And I know having just made the drive from Washington, D.C., up here into central PA, not a lot around. I suspect you don't have specialists tripping all over themselves here. So does that help you, uh, again, from a, a CEO perspective, when you're trying to get right care to right patient? Is that another tool for you? It is. I think anytime you can improve access and touch points, we're firm believers that those are good things because sometimes just when that becomes difficult, that's when patients might want to land in the ER or otherwise. And so if there's any way that we can make it easier to get them plugged in, even virtually, we know that good things tend to happen for our patients. And so that's been a big part of our focus. You mentioned the geographies and the communities that we serve. We do have wide swaths of central Pennsylvania that are more rural. And at the same time, we have areas, for example, our northeast with Wilkes-Barre and Scranton that are more sort of semi-urban, I would describe them as. And so I think regardless of geography, sometimes using any and all measures, 
to try to get specialty access and primary care access as convenient as possible. I think that's what we're out to do. So you mentioned food pharmacy, one of my absolute favorites. We are getting at sometimes referred to as social determinants of health, sometimes unmet social needs, whatever term of art you prefer. Let's talk a little bit about how Geisinger tries to help those individuals. We know that that phenomenon is real. If you've spent any time as a practicing physician or a care manager or nurse or anybody on the frontline delivering care, you know that a lot of times people's challenges in terms of obtaining good health, it's not necessarily related to something clinical. It's just something else in their life makes it really tough. And so the more we can remove those barriers, we know we're going to have an impact. And food, as it turns out, is a big one. And you're familiar with our program, Cece, but for those who aren't, we launched our Fresh Food Pharmacy Oh boy, it's it's been a few years now. And we essentially take people who have diabetes and the diabetes is not well controlled. And at the same time, they report or self-report being quote unquote food insecure, meaning they're not sure where their next meal is coming from. And we enroll them in the program. It provides fresh produce, lean meats, but more importantly, the coaching and the education and training around how to eat more healthy foods and, and turn the diet into something that works for their disease management as opposed to against it. When we've done that, we've actually seen an average hemoglobin A1C reduction. And that's a measure of how effectively someone's blood sugar is controlled. We've seen an average reduction of two points and less is better, by the way. And when we get somebody optimized on their medicines and they have diabetes, We actually only see an average reduction of one point, which means this food program ends up having double the impact of what the medications do. And so that's an astounding fact. It shocks everybody when we talk about that, but that's what we've seen. At the same time, we've seen decreases in ER utilization. We've seen decreases in the rate at which those folks get hospitalized. And we've actually seen a 19% increase in the rate at which they use primary care services. And we think those are all the right kinds of trends that we would want to see. And the primary care uptake is really a reflection of engagement with their own health. And if you talk to the folks enrolled in the program, they all say something pretty similar, which is, you know, this program has given me hope. It's showed me what a simple change in my lifestyle can really do for my health. And as a result, I want to be more healthy. And, and, and as a result, I'm going to go seek out primary care services. And so I think that's when the flywheel starts spinning in the right direction. And we've been super thrilled about it. We've tripled the size of the program just in the last 18 months. And we think there's even more disease states that are food sensitive, so to speak, beyond just diabetes. And so now we're also including some other disease states, congestive heart failure, chronic renal disease into the model and trying to test and see if we have the same kind of clinical impact. I think you were probably anticipating my next question, but I'm going to pose it directly just in case. And that is, and it's a big debate, I think, right now, the policy world. And of course, as as a MedPAC commissioner, you know this. But where do you move from your work in the community and social needs, be a good citizen, feel good, to 
you're a CEO, you answer to a board, you need to demonstrate return on investment. Do you have a confidence level and what do you put in your ROI? Yeah, so on something like the fresh food pharmacy, I think it's still, believe it or not, we need a lot more people in the model to prove out what it's worth in a way that passes actuarial muster. You know, so if you're on the insurance side, the actuaries would tell you, well, you still don't have enough to demonstrate the impact financially, but we know that it's still super impactful. So thus far, we've been lucky to do it through partnerships, to do it through local support and philanthropy, to get the program off the, off the ground as we enroll more and more people. And now we have, I think, about 12 to 15 months ago, we were serving over 7,000 meals a week through this program. And now we're probably at least double, if not close to triple that. And so the program's grown considerably. But as we get that body of experience, it'll be a lot more, what I would say, actuarially sound, where an insurance person would feel comfortable taking that and baking it into their pricing models of what it will do for total cost of care. There are a lot of sort of extrapolation models, for lack of a better term, out there in the industry that correlate better managed diabetes and better managed blood sugars to decreases in cost of care. You know, I just wonder if you're running a company that's publicly traded, reporting to shareholders on a quarterly basis. Can you make these same sort of investments for the long term? I believe you can. But long term is where I might hesitate a little bit. I think that may be what you're getting at with your question. And, and I don't profess to understand the full dynamics of what publicly traded companies face. But I think if, if you're building some of these programs, you do have to have the aperture that extends beyond the near term quarter or the next quarter or even the next fiscal year. Some of these programs, you'll see the impact two, three, four, five years down the line. I'll give you a good, good example. When someone manages their blood sugar better and they're a diabetic, believe it or not, what you end up saving is you save their kidneys from kidney damage five, six, seven, eight years down the road. That's exactly the right thing to do for a community and for a population. But if you're looking for ROI that has to come sooner than that, it's tough to really prove out. Versus there are other interventions that are more immediate. Ideally, you'd love to do both. And so I think that's where some of the nonprofits, organizations like us that have the ability to just focus and be laser focused on our communities and what we can do both long and short term, I think it, it opens the door to more of these programs. And so we are still, unfortunately, in the middle of a pandemic. And it looks like it could be a while for your local communities here in Pennsylvania and for your organization. What additional challenges has COVID-19 delivered and have it, has it given you any opportunities? Yeah, there's been, I, there's plenty of silver lining in this cloud. There's no doubt about it. And, and we've been really happy with some of those. I mean, across the industry, you're seeing telemedicine take off. Obviously, we all hear a lot about that. That's a great example. Just some things that sometimes it takes that urgency of now to really launch things. Work from home is another great example. And this is not unique to the healthcare industry, but we were able to pivot pretty quickly thanks to our entire team, the IT team, the operations team, 
all the teams throughout Geisinger are pivoting fairly quickly to maintain what we do, but be able to have a lot of it be work from home. Obviously, patient care is something that's always in person, although yes, virtually if it's telemedicine, but some of the back office things, we've, we've been able to see a lot of progress on work from home, such that as we eventually and hopefully come out of this pandemic, we put a goal out there that we think maybe 20, 25%, maybe even 30% of our administrative workforce, we think can truly work from home. And we have a lot of work going on in, in terms of how to make that happen. But if you think about, again, the convenience of that and sometimes the efficiency of that as well, that's a tremendous silver lining that's come out of this cloud. At the same time that there's been a lot of challenge and and we all know about the challenges, but a few of them that we've observed is as much as this has been a clinical battle, I think it's also been a battle of communication and education and making sure that we get out and about in our communities Everybody says this, but it's absolutely true. We are all in this together. And I think we saw early on that all it takes is one little hotspot somewhere, whether it's a nursing home, a school, a meatpacking plant, a prison. All it takes is that one outbreak. And all of a sudden, you have a problem in your hospitals and in the communities because it can blossom into so much more than that. And so we've been very aggressive in swimming upstream and getting to the schools, to the school districts, to the universities, to the employers, to the nursing homes, to the prisons, and, and trying to work and educate them on how do you contain, how do you mitigate, what are the right precautionary measures, and also being actively out there in our communities to try to educate people on the importance of screening, distancing, masking, hand hygiene, all the things that we've all heard much too much about. So wearing your twin hats, CEO of Geisinger, also MedPAC commissioner, I'd love for us to close on on, uh, two questions regarding America's seniors, a growing demographic, especially as baby boomers are retiring. First, I'd love to understand a little bit more Geisinger's 65 Forward program. Yeah, so we absolutely love this program because it's a good illustration of what we were talking about earlier. It is a senior-focused primary care model, concierge level of care. The typical primary care panel across the industry tends to average about two to 3,000 patients per provider. At Geisinger, we try to stay on the lower end of that because that allows for better access and availability and the ability for the physician or provider to better manage the various health issues that come with the patient panel. But within the 65 forward model, the senior-focused primary care, we actually kept the panel at about a fifth of that. So 450 patients per provider in that model. And what that means to the folks, the patients that are in the model, it means you're competing with only 450 other patients for the physician's time, for the care manager's time, for the clinical pharmacist's time. And that means you're seeing a lot more during the course of the year, if you want, and we encourage them to be seen. And when you're seen, you're seen for longer. And the other neat feature of the model is it's sort of a clinic in the back end of the building, but in the front, you would walk in and you might think you were in a community center or a fitness center. It's got the fitness machines, the yoga balls, a place with snacks and a coffee machine. And you might see people doing pottery class, weaving, 
and embroidery. You might see an art class going on. You will almost definitely see yoga and fitness classes. During COVID, we did a lot of these outdoors, believe it or not, in a distance environment. But it's sort of that wellness activity space in the front, a clinic in the back, and it creates an environment where seniors want to come, not just for their care, but really for the social aspects as well and for other ways that they can engage themselves. And we think we're big believers that wellness, and I'll put that term in quotes, is well beyond the doctor's office. It's also what you do in your life. And especially with some seniors, we know loneliness is a big deal as well. And so creating that community environment, we are absolutely thrilled. So we've launched two of these in the last year. We have four more coming this year. We're going to continue to build. So it's just been a tremendous model, but it's an example of the kind of care model that can only happen when you have the financing and the delivery married together. Because in a traditional fee-for-service billing environment, there's no way you could have your doctor spend an hour with each patient because that's not how reimbursable primary care services works in the broader healthcare industry. And so we've been thrilled, patients have been thrilled, and we think there's a lot more room to run on that one. Well, in listening to you describing panel size of 450 patients, but with that entire clinical team, it, it reminds me of you know Zeke Emanuel's quip about lavishing care on certain target populations. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. We just reviewed some of the early data we have on the first two sites. Patient satisfaction is at 98th percentile. And so you could just start there. Imagine what happens with their engagement, with their health, when they're that satisfied with that experience. The other is even from a cost of care standpoint, these folks end up having less likelihood of landing in the ERs, landing in the hospital, which makes good intuitive sense too. They're seen for longer. They're seen more often. They feel like their care needs are met. And so it stands to good reason that they would feel less of an impetus for going to the ER and the hospital. We still think there's even more opportunity because we're just getting started, but it's, it's been tremendous. That's so great. And speaking of seniors, I'd be remiss if, if we didn't chat a little bit about Medicare Advantage. Just growing, like leaps and bounds, seniors voting with their feet, as the cliche goes. What's your vision for Medicare Advantage? Yeah, so we think that because that's a vehicle through which the financing and the delivery for us comes together, we, we love that program. We think it allows us to enrich the benefits so seniors have coverage on things like dental and vision and, and a whole host of other things. They're out of pocket costs for when they go to the hospital or the ER or the clinic or where have you tends to be less. Their drugs are covered, which is a big frustration for many of our physicians and physicians across the country. So when you're seeing somebody, you do your darndest to take good care of them. They can't afford to get the medications filled. That's a serious barrier to, to health. And Medicare Advantage that packages with that drug benefit, it's much less likely to happen. And so there are a lot of reasons why we think it's just more conducive to driving health. Now, is that the only model that works? Absolutely not. But we, we have found that it's a, it's a model that works well for our patients, our members, and for our organization and the kinds of things we like developing. 
Well, I just can't thank you enough, Dr. Jaywan Ru, for joining us, hosting us for an on-the-road edition of Healthy Dialogue. Thank you. Well, it's good seeing you, Cece, and thanks so much for coming by. Thank you. Before we go any further, Cece needs a minute. beginning of this episode, I asked rhetorically whether your doctor ever asks you about underlying conditions that give rise to social determinants of health. And I'm going to bet that for most of you, the answer was probably no or not much. There are any number of reasons why doctors don't screen for SDOH. Some think those questions are an invasion of privacy, too personal, too intimate. Fee-for-service doesn't really allow the time in many cases for those types of conversations. But mostly, providers aren't asking these questions because they don't know what they're supposed to do with the answers. You know, what if you said, no, I really can't get balanced meals? Or you said to your doctor, I live in a dangerous relationship or I'm afraid I won't have enough money to pay next month's rent. In order for your doctor to do something with that information, something that could help you address the root cause and put you on the path to better health, he or she would have to be very well connected to community resources that could help you. Your provider would need to be able to prescribe a course of action, so to speak. And just like medications, your physician would need to know how that prescription works, how you would access it, and what it could do for you. For so many of our health systems, having a solid understanding of those community resources is simply too much to ask of clinicians. Now, for health organizations that have this tight alignment between payers and providers, it's a much more reasonable ask. And it is easier to achieve. So here's a little tease. You'll be hearing more about payer-provider alignment in the weeks to come. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Healthy Dialogue. Learn more about the Alliance of Community Health Plans at ECHP.org and click the Add to Contacts button to connect directly with our team. We hope you'll also find us on Twitter at underscore ACHP and on LinkedIn. And if you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Reviews help new listeners find our podcast and hopefully spur more healthy dialogue out there.